Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu slash business. From the Sorrell College of Business, I'm Judson Edwards, and this is The Double Dome, a Business Geeks podcast from Troy University. Welcome back to another episode of The Double Dome. It's time to put our heads together again. As business geeks over in the Sorrell College, where I'm the dean, we're always looking for something new to learn. And today I'll be talking to author and policy scholar Stephen Hayward. His new biography is titled M. Stanton Evans, Conservative Wit, Apostle of Freedom. M. Stanton Evans, or Stan Evans as I knew him, was a very close friend and important figure in the American conservative movement. In addition to his career as a journalist, he had a special connection to Troy University where he served as a visiting professor for over 30 years. What Stan saw as critical to success in journalism was the depth of knowledge in traditional academic disciplines like economics and biological science. The way that journalism was being done, the way the media were being run, was unsatisfactory, to put it as charitably as possible. What I became concerned about was journalists covering issues they did not understand. So if you're ready, let's put our heads together and talk to the man who wrote the book on Troy's own M. Stanton Evans, Stephen Hayward. Stephen Hayward, welcome to the Double Dome Podcast. Well, thank you, Judson. It's really fun to join you. Well, I am so glad to have you at Troy University, and I'm so happy that you have written the book, the biography of our friend Stan Evans. You know, it was such an honor to do, actually. I mean, that's sort of literally in the full uh, sense of the term. Uh, it was fun to do. I really enjoyed doing the work. Uh, and it's also a new uh, writing form for me. I've never written a formal biography before, so that was a, a good challenge. Not because you're just sitting here in front of me, but, you know, I, I think I even sent you an email about it earlier of you really captured the tone of Stan Evans in this book. And I know, you know, you try to have that balance with Stan of uh, I was talking to a faculty member today and he was like, I had no idea Stan had this impact on all these people. I said, yeah, he was the how many guys, do you know, that is just like a top shelf intellectual they could be friends with the cook at Burger King and then be in the president's office, you know, the same afternoon. Yeah, that's quite a range. That's, that's a good way of putting it. it, it, it he was, uh, it's an overused phrase, but he was kind of an everyman. He got on with everybody. So as you were trying to put together your thoughts for the book, how did you kind of shape the story from, from just a writing perspective? When you, Being so close to Stan, how did you decide, this is how I need to start it? Did you have something pre-planned or did you just kind of let it flow as you wrote it. Yeah, I get that interesting question. That's um, well, I'll put it this way. I think a biographer ought to seek to explain the subject or the person as that person understood themselves. You ought to try and tell their story. I, I find a lot of biographies quite annoying because they assume some air of superiority and they're very judgmental toward their subject. Uh, and some people deserve critical biographies, you know, bad guys. But uh, in the particular case of Stan, I wanted to bring out the balance, you've already referred to it, of his humor, his friendliness, 
his depth of uh, thought. Uh, I mean, he was a serious intellectual uh, uh, and his wide-ranging journalism. And then, of course, his effect on uh, so many people as a mentor, as formerly as a teacher, of course, of journalism here at Troy. But he was teaching journalists, the next generation of journalists, when he was only 25 years old. Uh, already, uh, he had that instinct to pass along his methods and, and try and create, you might say, progeny. You know, I think one of the things for uh, the discussion you had earlier today with uh, students about Stan was how young he was when he started at the Indianapolis Star. Yeah, Indianapolis News. It was the, I'm sorry, it's, well, it's the sister paper of the stars, owned by the same person, uh, Eugene Pulliam. The news was the evening paper, which actually had a bigger circulation. You know, we don't have evening papers anymore. But, yeah, he uh, was recruited by the publisher when he was just 25 years old to be an editorial writer. And within a year, Pulliam had named him editor-in-chief of the whole paper. It's a big paper. I went through uh, a lot of old issues. Uh, I'd never read them his early work before, and it was fascinating stuff. He was unbelievably productive there. But, but yeah, he was the, I think, maybe still the youngest editor-in-chief of a major daily paper in American history. He was in uh, Indiana for how long? About 15 years in okay. total. Yeah. And then after that, what did what did Stan do after that? Well, I should say that it, it doesn't sort of neatly break down that way. I mean, he was the editor of the paper for 15 years, but he started doing other things while that was going on. So he helped in the mid-60s start the American Conservative Union. He was involved in the starting of the Philadelphia Society, an important conservative intellectual group. And in the early 70s, while he was still at the paper, he became chairman of the American Conservative Union and started a number of their political initiatives. And it was along that time that two things happened to him more broadly in journalism. He was picked up as a nationally syndicated columnist by the Los Angeles Times. That was around 1970, I think. And CBS News Radio picked him up to be a weekly radio commentator. And that gave him a national platform. He started getting invited on national television programs like Meet the Press and things like that. Uh, as a panelist. And so at some point, he decided to move to Washington, D.C. Uh, and to relocate there. He used to joke he moved to Washington to be closer to his money. <laughs> he, he never didn't, he really didn't like Washington. Uh, in fact, he got out as of Washington as often as he could, either to his uh, country home in Hamilton, Virginia. Or that's one reason I think he loved coming down to Troy University. It got him out of Washington, back with, as he put it, real people, and then with students. When you think about I guess his contributions to the the conservative movement, uh, where do you see probably he had the greatest impact? At least two things. Uh, one is, is uh, and I didn't mention it in my talk to students while here, uh, is that he was the author of the famous Sharon Statement. That's kind of the Gettysburg Address, uh, literally it's only 400 words long, of conservative principles that he wrote in 1960 at the founding of Young Americans for Freedom. And it's really what conservatives believe. And you can still read it today. It's, it's about uh, you know, timeless principles of freedom, free market economics, limited government, uh, strong foreign policy and defense. Uh, and for years after, he would never brag about having been the author of it. He was asked to draft it for this group. And if you did ask him, he would say, well, I was just expressing timeless truth that anybody could have put down if they thought about it, which, okay, I, I suppose that's true, but it shows his modesty. And it's a little bit like Thomas Jefferson when Jefferson was asked, what were you trying to do with the Declaration of Independence? And he says, I was just trying to express the harmonizing sentiments of the day. You know, <laughs> and Okay, but he said it so well. And that's what you'd say about Stan. And then second, uh, he really is a bridge from what I still call the old right, which was uh, you know, kind of curmudgeonly 
disengaged from politics, disliked politics, right? They all just wanted to – people like Albert J. Nock, interesting people, but they wanted to cultivate their private garden. And Stan represented the, the newer, more political right that said, if we're going to preserve conservative ideas, we have to get involved in practical politics in a serious way. Not let it take over our lives. He was very important to say, don't get sucked into the political vortex and become a pure political animal. But he said, look, conservatives need to win elections. Uh, and so that's part of what his work at the American Conservative Union was about, was building up a cadre of candidates and competent political professionals um, and so forth. You know, I know that there's so many people that came through the NJC, which, yeah. you know, had such an, a, a huge impact on the ability to uh, get conservative viewpoints into the press and, and training young people to, uh, to right. do great work. Uh, what do you see as kind of the, the major contributions of the NJC um, as it went, as it was established and kind of moved through that, that period of kind of the heyday of the conservatives? Yeah. What Stan thought was that the biggest problem in journalism was not necessarily liberal bias. There, he, he did think that was a problem, but not the main problem. He thought the real problem was journalism was too superficial, uh, that people didn't chase after the facts enough. I won't say lazy. He never used that word, but he think he thought people uh, in the media too often just said all the same thing. They traveled as uh, a pack. And so he thought that you needed to uh, uh, give uh, opportunities, so the internships, he would place interns with media organizations, uh, for people to learn the craft. Uh, and, of course, he would do these seminars trying to explain uh, what the better practice of journalism consisted of. He also thought, and I think, by the way, one of the blessings of the Hall School here at Troy is that it's from Cheek Pie Jowl with all of you in the Sorrell School of Business. So I don't know how fully it's cross-pollinated, but Stan really thought that economic literacy, uh, some basic understanding of how business worked was important to a journalist, even if you weren't on the business beat. He just thought that was good back. So a lot of his seminars for the journalists that he would teach on Fridays consisted of him talking about basic economics. Of course, he you know, did some graduate study in economics and wrote a lot about economic matters. So he tried to make everybody more economically literate, among other things. He really, you know, from my perspective, when he came to Troy and, and started working with the School of Business and our Johnson Center, you know, he loved the idea of economics and journalism. And he, you know, he yeah. would kind of cross-pollinate of trying to teach our economists, you know, how, how to better write and, and make yeah. impactful statements. Uh, but he always was pulling journalists over to the econ side. Said, "You really need to, you know, understand these concepts and and be a better journalist." Because I, I knew Stan, but Stan had so many sides to him. You never knew everything. And so the thing that really just took me, because especially being from Alabama and the connection with kind of growing up knowing it, George Wallace and all of that was, I mean, it just blew me away of what you discussed about the 19, the proposed mm -hmm. Independence Party with Russia right. and Stan, you know, coming down to Alabama to meet with Governor Wallace and even to explore the idea of a Reagan-Wallace Independence Party in 1976. Right. That's just, I that was just wild. I couldn't believe, and he never said anything to me about that. I found that to be... You know, I would just think as many times we talked about Wallace, he never yeah. said, yeah, I sat down with him. I'd yeah. love to hear your kind of thoughts oh. on how that came about. Yeah, well, there's a couple parts to that story. Uh, one is that Stan never liked Nixon. That goes all the way back to 1960. He was not enthusiastic about Nixon as a successor to Eisenhower and no more so in 1968. And then, of course, uh, he thought Nixon governed too much as a liberal. And then Watergate came along and made things even worse. So he thought Nixon was undermining the Republican Party as a conservative party. And then Watergate was such a disaster that the Republican Party might not recover. 
And at the time, that was a very plausible thought, widely speculated on. Uh, I think after the 76 election, the number of Americans who identified as Republicans reached an all-time low of something like 18 percent in one survey, oh. almost extinction level, right? So it's a little before that, though, that uh, out of the ruins of Watergate and Nixon, that Stan and Bill Rusher and some other people thought maybe the Republican Party is finished. Maybe it's time to start a conservative party that would inherit – it's sort of like the disappearance of the Whigs in the 1840s, you might say – that would inherit the conservatives in the Republican Party that would also appeal to conservative Democrats. We've kind of forgotten now there used to be a lot of those, not just in the South, but also in the North because uh, it's like forgotten now. But George Wallace ran very strong in the North in both 64, 68 and 72. So the thought's kind of obvious there. There's a new majority to be had with a new party. And how do you bring in conservative Democrats, conservative Republicans? Well, Reagan-Wallace made sense. I think Reagan didn't care for Wallace, and that's a story for another day. Uh, but Stan, as chairman of the American Conservative Union, was a practically-minded person. If you're going to get a third party on the ballot, how do you do it in all 50 states? Ballot access laws can be very difficult. So that's when he wrote uh, or had a staff write to all 50 states to find out in detail how do you get on the ballot. That's the way he thought. <laughs> and he later changed his mind and, and uh, came back around to thinking that probably it's wiser to stick with the Republican Party and, and uh, hope for a revival of their fortunes. And then, of course, four years later, you have a Reagan landslide. As we've seen what's happened, you know, over the past uh, probably six Eight ten years. I mean, it's really yeah. to me is alive today of a lot of what he, he what he said in seventy five. He had great prescience, really going back even to the sixties uh, about many aspects of what were what is front and center to us today. And gosh, I wish well, I always wish we had him around for everything. But I'd really be interested in him thinking about what we've been through with all the COVID business. And one of the things you probably know is if you're part of what is now being called the laptop class. A lot of people in that class did very, very well during COVID because uh, people like you and me, really, we could do our classes online. Um, technology allows that. Wouldn't have allowed that 100 years ago in the Spanish flu or even 20 years ago. Uh, but for an awful lot of people, the people who actually have to show up to work, to restaurants or grocery stores, they can't work that way. And the, the lockdowns and reductions in economic activity have been devastating. Uh, and you know we're starting to see some of the returns and all of that. Um, that connects to a larger thing that Stan was always uh, concerned about that had several parts. One was you know, sort of forced egalitarianism, socialism, if you like, had replaced opportunity. Uh, liberals, older liberals used to be for opportunity, and by degrees they've gotten over now they call it equity, right? And Stan saw early on that's going to alienate hardworking people who just want to play by the rules, as Bill Clinton wisely said 30 years ago. Uh, and, and also that that would entail a rise of a more and more extensive and powerful bureaucratic class at all levels of government. And boy, have we seen that. Uh, so he was way ahead of the curve on what's now front and center for a lot of people. Um, of all the things in the book that you would just want to convey to listeners, that, that you know, one thing that people should know about Stan and know about um, his contributions while he was here with us. Uh, boy, it, it's hard to summarize in just two or three things. If you really dive into the long story of the conservative movement, it's hard to imagine it having happened the way it did and flourishing to the extent it did without him. Uh, I think most people who were involved in it will tell you he was a very important figure. But because he was so modest and unpretentious uh, and didn't was not a self-promoter, uh, we forget that now. Uh, people around the time understood his importance. He was always a person you wanted to have at a key meeting, 
Often the person you ask to write the statement for a group, I mentioned the Sharon statement, but he wrote several more such statements later on for at various key moments. Uh, and always the sort of the wise level head you wanted around. Uh, but there are the personal traits to him too. I mean, we've mentioned about how funny he was. That didn't come through in his writing. He was a pretty much a straight ahead writer with occasional exceptions. But part of it was his, uh, not a rule, but advice that you should turn it off at after 6 o'clock at the end of the day and go have fun. And so, you know, you and others, what you know about him is, well, he was great in class and he taught us great stuff. But then we'd go out and have so much fun. We'd listen to music and we'd be dancing or go to sports. And Stan, it turned out, was a maven for popular culture and sports trivia. And so he was a well-rounded human being. And so that's a worthy model all by itself. Yeah, you know, you say a well-rounded individual, and I think Robin said it today. He was brilliant, you yeah. know, and it just seems to me in all the, the time I've spent in academia and people that I've met, it, for someone to be that brilliant and be so comfortable being the everyday man, like you yeah. said, I just I, – I, there can't be many like that out there. Yeah, well, you know, there's that other cliche we often use about someone who is comfortable in their own skin. Well – that may or may not be overused, but it certainly applies to Stan better than an awful lot of human beings. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it has brilliance. I guess I hadn't fully thought about this before about Stan, but when I put together all his work and stared at it, I, one of the things that I realized was if he had chosen a formal academic career, gone on, got a PhD in mm -hmm. some subject, I have no doubt he would have been one of the premier academics in whatever field he chose. He could have chosen any of them. He majored in English at Yale. Uh, he was very literate in economics, and I think he could have gone to the University of Chicago and won a Nobel Prize. He wrote history. He could have been a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. Um, he could have been a political philosopher on par with Eric Vogel and or some of the other famous conservative philosophers that we still remember. Uh, but he chose the journalism and practical route instead, and so that's more famous in certain ways. I'll just say this. I'm, I'm going on too long, but he did leave behind two books that I think will last a long time on the shelf. The Theme is Freedom, which is a not that long, but very wide-ranging and profound treatment of the story of human liberty and individual rights, limited government, with some very novel perspectives, I think, that were unique to him. And then, of course, his great revisionist history, blacklisted by history, about how History and, of course, the media at the time had mistreated Joe McCarthy, what they'd gotten wrong, what McCarthy had right and didn't get credit for. And that's a big, fat book that he spent years working on. And nobody can contemplate the whole McCarthy episode without taking account of Stan's work. Just out of curiosity, I know you, you teach um, at uh, Cal Berkeley and you teach you know, <laughs> know. Troy, Alabama, right. Troy University in Cal Berkeley. I'm sure our student... Uh, our student makeup was probably a little culturally different. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things I wanted to ask was, what do you see as kind of the future path for mm. uh, conservatives um, in terms of where do you see young people going? And maybe this kind of relates to the journalism discussion, yeah. of using social media and things that uh, I don't know how skilled, I would say, yeah. the Republican Party has been in doing that. Yeah, not very. Uh, I mean, a couple of obvious things that I think are not controversial is, you know, Donald Trump, love him, like him, be in the middle. You know, he was uncool. I think he turned off a lot of young people, mm -hmm. fairly or unfairly. A lot of that is the media and, of course, college faculties who are 
unrelentingly hostile to every aspect of what happened. And that has an effect on younger people, right? They don't, uh, unless they're going to Troy University or unless they stumbled a class of mine by accident at Berkeley, they don't hear anything else. So that's a big practical problem. The universities, most of them, not this one, uh, happily, uh, are getting worse very fast. They've always been liberal, but in the last two, three years, for reasons we're all familiar with, they've just lurched far, far to the left. Uh, and maybe too far. I mean, maybe what we have going for us is I do meet some very smart progressive students at Berkeley who don't like – they're not down for all of the rigid identity politics. They don't like cancel culture. Uh, it's gone too far for even progressives. And I have some of them tell me they sign up for my classes when they find out I'm a conservative because they want to hear something different. So maybe we have that going for us if we can get the opportunity to get in front of young people. Uh, that's why Stan always loved to do it. How important do you think it is for students to, to be globally aware and to have, um, you know, study abroad opportunities or engaged in the uh, business community as far as, you know, global companies and the importance of trade and those types of things? Well, I guess I, uh, uh, I, I certainly I always think travel abroad and studying abroad or even studying in another campus in our own country is very valuable because moving around, you get new perspectives, whether you intend to or not. About being globally aware, I mean, I don't know, these days with our 24-7 instant news cycle, there can be too much information. And I also think, especially in the shortened attention spans that the current media and internet world has brought us, I'm always trying to encourage younger people to go back to reading books. But reading good books, not bad, most books are bad uh, or boring, uh, and to read good books. I don't say everybody has to read Aristotle or Adam Smith, but read good stuff that is enjoyable to read and stimulating, and I don't think we emphasize that enough anymore with younger people. Uh, and then, of course, what flows from that is learn to write. You know, learn to write more than just 240 characters <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, so I'm sort of a back-to-basics person. When you think about ethics, how do you how do you convey ethics when you teach, uh, or how do you, uh, you know, want students to better understand kind of developing their own ethical uh, foundations? Boy, that is a long subject. My short answer is, uh, one of the things I like about teaching, because I've, you know, I've been out in the think tank and journalistic world, is, and you know this, is you have 16 weeks, so you can do things slowly. The single biggest, I'll even say crisis of our time, is that the idea of human nature is now contested or denied. We can hmm. think of all kinds of obvious examples, yeah. like collegiate swimmers. I'll just say that, <laughs> right? Uh, and so what I try to do as a foundation for understanding the moral character of individual human beings is to talk about that there really is a human nature and what is that human nature and what makes it better, what makes it worse. If you can get that across to students, because they don't hear a lot of this anymore, and certainly not a place like Berkeley, except for me. Uh, then you're halfway down the field to uh, making students concentrate on what's essential about you know, human beings, human social interactions, uh, the way law and politics and e economics ought to work. Well, we will wrap up with the final question. And I, and I like this. This is, a, this is one that it always makes me think of, uh, of uh, my, my grandfather. But how do you personally define success? Mm. I think I'd go back to the old Shakespeare line on sincerity, which is to thine own self be true, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you want to – this makes me kind of an old liberal. I mean like an 18th century liberal, which still has its defects. But uh, uh, it's make, – make sure you're pursuing your self-chosen purposes. 
that assumes their good self-chosen purposes. We often say, you know, follow your dreams and your passion, and to a certain extent, right. that's right. But uh, uh, but you, you want to be reflective about those things, and but also be patient about it and be willing to put in the hard work for it. Stephen, thank you for being with us, and we're going to get you back to Troy soon. I um, hope so. This has right. been fun. Thank you so much. My guest for this episode of The Double Dome has been Stephen Hayward, author of M. Stanton Evitt's Conservative Wit, Apostle of Freedom. We hope that you'll subscribe to The Double Dome wherever you get your podcast and give us a high rating in the iTunes store. That, in addition to you giving us a shout-out on social media, will help other people find us. The Double Dome is produced by the Sorrell College of Business and Troy University. This episode was produced in the studios of Troy Public Radio by Austin Toy with help from Kyle Gassett. So until the next time we put our heads together again, I'm Judson Edwards, and this is The Double Dome. Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu slash business.